Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. It's where we will turn our attention this morning. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come boldly before you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ alone. And we recognize, even as we've just confessed in song, that there is nothing good in me whereby thy grace to claim. Even as we see in Psalm 8, and we'll see in our passage this morning, so often we look at the world around us and our, our hearts cry out, What is man that you are mindful of him? We know the depth of our depravity. We are well aware of our sin. We are shamed by our hearts that so easily return to our sin like a dog returns to its vomit. Truly, there is nothing good in us whereby thy grace to claim. And yet we rejoice with the chorus of that song that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. <laughs> Heavenly Father, there is nothing good in us and yet our claim, our hope this morning, is not in our merit. It's not that there might be something good in us. Our claim this morning is in the cross of Christ. It is in his blood that we rejoice. His resurrection is where our hope lies. It is in Christ alone that we come boldly and bring our requests. And it is in Christ alone that we know that we are heard. For we know that we are unworthy, and yet we rejoice in the cross. And Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would work through your word in each and every one of our lives, that your spirit would accomplish your purpose this morning, that you would give me boldness to proclaim the word of God with clarity and with authority, that you would be honored in all that is said and done, that you would work in each and every one of our lives, molding us into your image. We pray that distractions would fade away, that the truth of the word of God would loom large. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Awesome. It's a word that probably gets overused. Everything is awesome. It's a word that means extremely impressive. And I was trying to think of a different word to use this morning as I started with this illustration, but it's the word that kept coming to mind, even though it's a word that's often overused. It's the word awesome. And that's the word that describes my first experience at a college basketball game. It was awesome. I was left in awe. It was a fresh, I was a freshman in high school, and my dad took my friend and I up to Clemson University to watch uh, Clemson Tigers play the visiting UNC Tar Heels. I didn't know, uh, I, or I don't know what it was, but there was something so awe-inspiring and captivating about that moment. 
Really, it was the, the Tar Heels that just captured my imagination as a young man. You see, I grew up in a, in a home where my dad was a North Carolina Tar Heel fan. He grew up in North Carolina, not far from the campus. Uh, everyone on my Robinson side of my family is Tar Heel fans. Uh, and so that's just kind of naturally, yeah, I'm a Tar Heel fan. But it wasn't until that game when it was, I am a Tar Heel fan. That is my team. I remember, just, it, it was awesome. It grabbed my attention. Even during warm-ups, before the game even started, there was something so regal about them, if that's the right word. During warm-ups, the, the Tar Heels were in their uh, baby blue um, sweatsuits, whatever it was. They were warming up, and they were doing this thing where they would shuffle their feet, and then at the end of it, they would all get down on their bellies, and they would slide. And then they would get up, and they would do it in the other direction. And it was just awesome <laughs> as a freshman in high school. After that game, I followed every UNC. I was a UNC basketball fan. That was my team. I watched every game I could. I knew the names of the players. Half of my wardrobe was Carolina colored or had the logo on it somewhere. In fact, I was such a fan that I would watch every Duke game so I could see them lose and I could revel in that. In fact, in North and South Carolina, there is no greater rivalry than that UNC and Duke rivalry. There are Clemson fans, and there are University of South Carolina fans, there are Wake Forest fans, there are NC State fans, there are Georgia fans, all these states surrounding us. But everybody has a stance on UNC Duke. Everyone down there is on one side or the other. Down there, being a UNC fan was fun, it was exciting. Everywhere you go, you see people wearing it. It's a constant subject, a conversation. You're always talking about it. There's always someone to debate with. But then I moved to Iowa. Here is Iowa, Iowa State that dominates, and rightfully so. In fact, literally no one cares that I'm a UNC fan. And it's not that I no longer care about the Tar Heels. If a game is on, I will watch it. I couldn't tell you any starters anymore. But it's kind of lost its luster. It's no longer as fun and exciting as it was when, when everybody cared about it down south, when, when that was the subject of conversation, when, when, when just bringing it up or wearing it would spark a debate. When I bring up UNC here in Iowa, it doesn't spark a heated debate or excited conversation. It's simply acknowledged and dismissed. And so I find myself moving on and watching more Iowa State games. Because that now is the exciting thing. People want to talk about it. It's on the news. Everyone's wearing it or discussing it. Iowa, Iowa State. It's simply more fun to be an ISU fan in Iowa than it is to be a UNC fan in Iowa. It's a silly illustration, but I think my fandom and the excitement that fades, depending on where you are, helps us to understand the context of Hebrews. You see, as we saw last week in Hebrews 2, 1-4, the author of Hebrews is writing to second-generation Christians, and he's writing to them in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. Though it may have originally been 
easy to be captivated by the energy and the excitement of this new church. The energy and the excitement of these first generation Christians. There's now starting to be distance between the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the everyday experience of these new believers. Christianity is no longer new. It is no longer seemingly exciting. It doesn't have that, that, that shininess. And it's becoming increasingly clear that being a Christian is not going to be easy. And so as the excitement fades, as apathy sets in, the promise, and the promise of persecution threatens all who claim Christ, is less and less exciting. In the first two chapters of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews begins his address to these tempted, apathetic, second-generation Christians by pointing them to Christ. In fact, that's the purpose of Hebrews, as we mentioned. You'll see these warning passages all throughout Hebrews. As the author of Hebrews points these second-generation, apathetic Christians back to Christ. Be faithful. Wake up. Open your eyes to the glory of the cross. You see, his message here is not that the church can promise them an easier life or riches. His message is simply that Jesus is better. Don't look back to the empty promises of Judaism with longing. Don't look to the promised persecution of Rome with fear and with dread, but look to Jesus and see Him in His glory and rejoice in the hope of that salvation. That is the message of Hebrews. And his audience is these second generation Christians who are tempted to fall into apathy. Over the next two weeks, as we turn our attention to Hebrews 2, 5 to 18, the author of Hebrews moves his argument forward, showing that Jesus is superior, and he does it by turning our focus to the incarnation of Jesus and all that it means for us. Today we'll focus on Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. And we'll see that we must trust Jesus, for he is our only hope. This morning we'll see the failure of the first man and the triumph of the son. The failure of the first man and the triumph of the son. First thing we see is the failure of the first man. We see that in Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 8. The failure of the first man. See, the first thing we see here in verse 5 is the future of man. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testifies in a certain place, saying, he goes on to quote Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. That word there at the beginning, for, at the beginning of verse 5, returns to the argument from chapter 1, verses 5 to 14. It's this argument that he's been making that Jesus is superior to angels. 
In chapter 1, the focus is on Jesus as God. In chapter 2, the focus moves to Jesus as man. And you have this break here in verses 1 to 4. It's a call to respond. And so the, the context in um, Hebrews 1, 5 to 14, Jesus is, is better than angels. He quotes all these Old Testament passages. And then it's as if he, he can't hold it anymore. And he takes a break and he says, wake up, guys. Don't be apathetic. Look to who Jesus is. To the glory of the cross and trust in the Son. Do not float by the harbor of salvation. Do not apathetically float into hell. See Jesus and trust. Then he returns to that argument from 1, 5 to 14, that Jesus is better than angels. He did not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. This world to come, it's the millennial kingdom. It's the time when all of God's promises in Christ are fulfilled. After God has made Christ's enemies his footstool, his footstool, as verse 13 kind of leaves off. So his argument in 1, 5 to 14, he goes through all these Old Testament passages that look forward to Christ, that speak of Christ as God's son, as the fulfillment of all of God's promises uh, through Abraham and through David. He is the one who will sit on the throne. He is the one who right now is seated at the right hand of God until the Father makes his enemies his footstool. And verse 5 now picks up at that moment. The world to come of which we speak. That world when all Christ's enemies are made his footstool and he comes back and he is reigning. That world, that's what we're speaking of. That world will not be in subjection to angels. The angels will not reign with Christ in that role. They are not made to reign, as we've already seen in verses uh, in chapter 1. They are made to serve. It's not angels that will rule with Christ. In fact, it goes on to show in verses 6 to 8 that it is man who will reign with Christ. What is the future of man? Even though now he's been made a little lower than the angels, as we will see, is that he will be exalted above the angels and he will reign with Christ. In fact, as you see elsewhere in the New Testament, he will judge angels. Man will rule with Christ. That's the future. In fact, that's what you see in verses 6 to 8 is the glory and the honor of man. But one testifies in a certain place, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? We've already noted that verses 6 and 7 and verse 8 is a quotation from Psalm 8. It's Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6. And so what's going on here? Does the author of Hebrews not know who says this? One who testifies in a certain place? It's very broad, but it's purposeful. It's not that he doesn't know who says this. It's that it doesn't matter which human said this, what matters is that God said this. In fact, MacArthur notes that throughout the whole book of Hebrews, no human author is mentioned by name because the author of Hebrews is not worried about which man wrote that. He's more worried about what's behind that man, the Holy Spirit, God. This is God's word. God said this. It doesn't matter that it was David that wrote this. It matters that it is God that said this. It's not the result of ignorance. 
He wants us to focus on the true author. So what is it that has been said? What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? This was noted earlier. Psalm 8, the psalmist is looking, starts by looking back to creation. In verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 8, he, he explores the greatness of God. It is God who is great. In fact, I invite you to turn with Psalm 8 with me. Psalm 8, the first several verses. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Who have set your glory above the heavens and of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. You have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name. You are great. Verse 3, he moves to the, the, the vastness of this universe that God has created. God, you are great. In fact, I see that as I look up at the stars and when I consider your heavens the work of your fingers. You, this great God, has done this great work. The moon, the stars which you have ordained. In light of the greatness of God, in light of the vastness and the glory of creation, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man. Again there, that's a reference that that Jesus uses that term often in the the Gospels to refer to himself. Here, uh, that, that phrase, the son of man, is just general man. It's not tied to Jesus. He's just talking about man generally. Who is man that you are mindful of? Who is man, again, the son of man, that you take care of him? Lord, as I look out at creation, as I look at the stars, the sun, the moon, why do you care about us? I'm sure you felt that way before. As you sat out at night, especially here in Iowa, where you can get out into a field and you can really see the stars. I'm sure you've sat there before and you have just marveled. Nothing will make you feel so small as sitting and looking up at the stars, the vastness of creation, the glory of the universe. Who am I? Who am I? Why would God even care about me? You've probably seen those pictures or those, those videos from space as the... Um, satellites back up farther and farther away and and it gets to the point where earth is just a little speck. And and they've barely scratched the surface of the universe. What is man that you are mindful of him? He goes on, quoting the psalm here, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You've made him a little lower than the angels. For a little while, man's lower position is temporary. Angels are spiritual beings. They are powerful. They are not subject to death. But man will be given authority and glory and honor, as the psalm goes on to note. 
This is where we find ourselves now. We have been made a little lower than the angels. But you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. We noted earlier, going back to uh, verse 5, the future of man is to rule with Christ. Who is man? Well, the rest of this verse in, in 7 and 8 goes on to answer that. Man is the one who has been divinely appointed by the rule, to, to rule the world by God. See, Psalm 8 starts by showing how insignificant man is. But it doesn't stop there. The purpose of, of, of Psalm 8 is not so that you can just feel really bad about yourself. You are insignificant. It doesn't just leave it there. It goes on to show that how weak and insignificant you are, that God cares for you and that he has given you purpose and that he has called you to rule with him. Psalm 8 exalts man. God's original intent for mankind. In fact, what we see here, it looks back to the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26 to 27 and verse 28. Man is created in God's image. That man is given authority to rule To fill the earth, to subdue it. The purpose of man was to rule on earth as God's vice regents here. To tend to it. This was the glory and the honor of man. This was the purpose of man. And yet, as you go on into verse 8, you see that we have failed. For in that he put all in subjection under him. Right, every, uh, the hymns that you see here in verse 8, they're all referring to man in general. We're not yet talking about Jesus. We're still referring to mankind in general. You put all in subjection under him. The creation mandate, all was given in subjection to, to a man. You rule this. He left nothing that is not put under him. In fact, you see in verse 8, You've made him a little lower than the angels in, in Psalm 8, I'm sorry. You have made him to have dominion, verse 6, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Man was meant to have dominion over all of that. He left nothing that is not under him. But, now we do not see all things put under him. This was God's purpose, and yet this is not what we see. God's intention was for man to rule, but man's sin makes it impossible for man to rule. In fact, what you see in Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19, is that Adam failed. The problem is not that God failed. The problem is that man failed. The problem is that the first man fell. And under the rule of death and the curse of sin, man cannot fulfill his mandate. 
We are condemned to fail, to fail, cursed to fail, condemned to die, separated from God. The failure of the first man. We've seen the future of man, the glory and the honor of man, the present condition of man. Then you come to verse 9 and the triumph of the Son. And the first thing you see in the beginning of verse 9 is that Jesus is the one who is the hope of men. You see the progression here. This was man's purpose. It is not the future world. The, the, the world that is to come, of which we speak, will not be subject to angels. It will be subject to man. But we don't see that now. Man has fell. Man, man has fallen short. They have, uh, Adam failed. We do not now yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus. What a powerful line that is. But we see Jesus. Praise the Lord that we do not yet see God's plan completed. But we see God's plan inaugurated. It's like fall. There comes a time in the summer when you see that first leaf fall. And you know that fall is coming. You know that winter is around the corner. You start preparing for it. Not because all the leaves have already fallen, but because that first leaf proclaims to you what is inevitable, what is coming. It has inaugurated a process. We don't see all things put into subjection on man. We don't see man ruling as God intended. In fact, what we see is man who is weak, man who is condemned to die, man who is ruled by sin. But praise the Lord that we see Jesus. We see Jesus. The firstborn. He is the hope of men. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with, with glory and honor. Jesus, the one who became man. Where Adam failed, Christ triumphed. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. That's reference to his incarnation as we see in Philippians 2, 5-11. to Who humbled himself who took on flesh and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took on flesh. He himself became a little lower than the angels. And for the suffering of death, his humiliation is the reason of his exaltation. Because he died, he was crowned with glory and honor. Because he died and rose again, he is crowned with glory and honor. And don't miss the reference back to, to verse 7. To Psalm 8, you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. The glory and honor that man lost, Christ reclaimed. Again, Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Because of his death on the cross and his resurrection, he has been exalted, crowned with glory and, Adam, and honor. Where Adam failed, Jesus triumphed. Jesus fulfills man's original purpose. 
fact, we see this in Romans 5, another passage that deals with this failure of the first Adam and the triumph of the second. I invite you to turn there with me, Romans 5. It's a well-known passage. It's Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more, uh, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one man, through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many uh, offenses resulted in justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, brothers and sisters, Adam failed. He fell short. And in him, we all fall short of the glory of God. But we see Jesus. And in Christ, we have hope. And Christ, man, can be restored and crowned with glory and honor. And Christ, man, can once again rule with Christ. Because we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, by the grace of God. Again, what is man that you are mindful of him? Man is nothing. There is no merit in us at all. Everything that we see in this passage is by the grace of God alone. Why did Jesus do this? That he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone he might taste death for everyone. What we see here explained is the vicarious or the substitution in my place. I deserve death. I am content to die, condemned to die. That is what is rightfully mine. And yet Jesus made himself a little lower than the angels, suffered to the point of death, even death on the cross, is now crowned with glory and honor, seated at the right hand of the Father, that he might taste death for everyone. 
by tasting death forever. And Jesus removes the barrier that separates man from God. He restores man to his original purpose to bring glory to God through ruling the earth for God and with Christ. Adam failed, but Christ triumphed. And we rejoice in that. Where the first man failed, the second man triumphed. And so as we come to the end of this passage, we see very clearly that Jesus is superior. And so rejoice in him. Rejoice in him. Because Jesus has tasted death for everyone, he has tasted death for you. And so you must put your faith in him. And so the, the, the first call of response I would have this morning is if you are here and you've never placed your faith in Christ for salvation, that through Psalm 8 and through Hebrews 2, 5-9, that you would see your insignificance. That you would see the fact that in Adam you are condemned to die. That you would look to your own life and you would be honest with yourself and you would see your sin that separates you from God. Your sin that condemns you to hell. That you would see that things are not how they should be, but then that you would see Jesus. That you would place your faith in Him as in Adam all die and Christ all will be made alive. Trust in Him this morning.